At American University, we don't just hope for change, we create it. We don't just dream of a better world, we make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout DC to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash gradschool. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I am Joe Devine and today I am joined by Alex Stewart. Hello. Hello, how are you? Yeah, fine. Fine. Uh, I would like to start by apologising to any Brighton fans or anyone, any neutral fans who are hoping to hear us talk about Brighton. Uh, I even jived at the end of last week that we'd been promising to do it for some time and would certainly be doing it today. <laughs> Unfortunately, our third leg, Seb Stafford Bloor, is unwell um, and uh, luckily I caught him to say, don't worry about it, mate, as he was five minutes away from the train station in Bath heading into London where our we record the podcast. third leg. He's our third leg, yeah. I mean, a, is, that, is that not a euphemism? A third th- leg of a tripod, not yeah. not of a human man. Okay. Well, either that, re- read it what way you will. Maybe it was a veiled dig uh, at someone who was ill and unable to attend. But uh, this is unnecessary chitter-chatter, isn't it? Um, but we felt uncomfortable doing the podcast without Seb because for teams like Brighton, who I believe Seb has visited several times this season already, he really adds uh, quite a lot to it. So we could talk about the tactics if we want, and Alex spent a large part of his weekend looking them up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Only to be told very frustratingly that that work alongside all of the other work I was doing was unnecessary. No, it's not unnecessary because we will be doing it I, next week. I Brighton could have next just week. waited then, couldn't I? My promises don't really mean anything at this point, but I will make another promise. <laughs> next week will be Brighton. Uh, today, at short notice, uh, we are going to talk about Manchester United in the aftermath of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's appointment as the permanent manager. Uh, the main reason being um, Alex and I have colluded on uh, two videos in the last sort of 10 days, one of which was long awaited by some TIFO viewers, uh, the Manchester United tactics video under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, which we wanted to wait for some time to produce, even though it probably lost us quite a lot of views because other people get in there first. We wanted to be accurate about it. Um, and another was a piece written by Paul Ansorge as a sort of history of, um, of Solskjaer himself as a player. Um, and uh, at Manchester United. So it's the sort of freshest thing in our mind, really. Uh, so that's why that's why we're doing it. But we've just had a little chat about it, and there are lots of interesting things to say, we think. Which hopefully we'll remember. <laughs> Which hopefully we will remember, as very little planning has gone into this. Uh, I think the best place to start, really, I mean, look, the, the obvious answer to this is is yes, I know that, but it was the right decision by the club to appoint him on a permanent basis. The question I would like to ask you is um, a sort of thought about the timing because I found it, I found it odd. I thought you're in a situation certainly where um, the temporary manager, Ollie, is uh, not going to leave or be upset that he hasn't been appointed as a permanent manager until the end of the season. You could have also had a private conversation with him. You could have had a private conversation with the players. The reason, reason for the timing that I've heard uh, is maybe that it was to be able to let uh, potential summer transfer targets know that there will be a consistency in manager or who the manager would be. But also, I don't see any reason why you couldn't indicate to those players in talks that that would be the case. Um, maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong about how the, those processes take place. Um, 
but I was expecting them to wait a little bit longer. Why buck a trend if things are positive, Alex? Have you got any ideas as to why they would have done it at this specific time? Or does it, am I overthinking it? Does it not matter? Um, well, to be pedantic, it doesn't matter because it's happened. Yes. Um, I, I'm not as emphatically sure that it is necessarily the right thing to have done overall, actually. I mean, I think it's a... I think it's a, an absolute and a relative question like so many things in football are. In absolute terms, is he the best person who could do the job? No, probably not. In relative terms, is he the best person who is available in a way that makes financial sense and gives some continuity? Then probably yes. I mean, I still think that there would be Man United executives who would have preferred particularly Pochettino, but that you know there are other available managers out there. We should also say that um, you I mean, know he's that, very cheap comparatively. That oh, sure. is a factor. Sure, and there was there was some confusion over whether or not uh, he was on a temporary contract from Mulder, as it appears that he wasn't. Which was I don't know. There's something confusing about that. Initially, when he arrived, yeah, Mulder made statements saying we're we're just lending we're, him we're lending him for a fee, yeah. and then it appears that that <laughs> fee was actually buying him out of his contract. Yeah. United apparently have also given them that sum of half a million pounds again as a gesture of goodwill. Okay. Which sounds really football, sure. doesn't it? I it mean, does a little bit, doesn't it's it? It's cup overfloweth with goodwill. Um, mm. But the other thing I was going to say was that, uh, you know, that the, the uh, comparison with uh, Roberto Di Matteo at Chelsea is very tired. However, a similar thing has happened here. Uh, Solskjaer has put them in a position where to not sign him would be a bit of a sort of PR well, uh, I don't, faux pas, wouldn't it? I mean, possibly. How, how, unless you were, which other manager can you bring in uh, to replace Solskjaer, who's done nothing wrong and on the on the face of it, everything right in his temporary yeah. time there, it, it would be difficult to justify that, well, uh, but particularly I, because of the personal personal connections as well. <clears throat> yeah, and I and I think that's the point about whether it's you know if if in an ideal world United could look at appointing whoever they wanted because uh, they're free from budgetary constraints and all the rest of it, mm. then I, I don't think that's necessarily a consideration because the narrative at the, the beginning was very much, you know, coming in, fighting fires, getting the shit back on the right course, making people happy again. And, and all of that has been achieved, absolutely. In, in that sense, he's filled his brief or fulfilled his brief. But is that in itself justification? You know, you're not, you're talking about one of the biggest football clubs in the world, a massive commercial entity. There are other considerations beyond that. Mm. Um, I I think to go back to your original question around timing, it does strike me as weird, actually. Um, why why mess up a good thing? Well, why mess up a good thing? Why? Oh, well, I mean, they haven't messed anything up necessarily, but no. the potential for for acting when there's no need to act—that's what I didn't understand. Yeah, I, I think I think that's that's the confusing thing. We don't know, obviously, what's going on behind the scenes. Whether Solskjaer is is saying because I think one of the things with Solskjaer is he he comes across as as extremely likable. I'd love it if he was cutthroat behind closed doors. Right, but but you have to look at. Uh, his career mm. and the way that he came back from injury and the way that he played, you know, never happy to sit on the bench, always incredibly keen to impress when he came off. You know, this is somebody who is 
extraordinarily determined and focused. Like and a sociopath. Hugely professional. Do you remember the story of like when, he first, uh, when he first arrived <laughs> at the club and uh, there were sort of coups, understandable coups, from, from many corners about how he'd brought some chocolates for the ladies at the front desk. I think it was the quote that was, that was often uh, touted around. I'd like to think maybe if he is cutthroat that perhaps he's uh, really he's kind of a loan shark. And the next day he came in and said, right, you owe me money now. Yeah, and uh, you each owe me day... eight chocolates rather than the five I gave you. <laughs> now it's 576 chocolates with yeah. chocolate interest, yeah. It's, it's possible. It's unlikely. I, I just think that it's, um, it, suits, it suits everybody. It suits the club. It suits the press mm-hmm. um, to treat him as this kind of sweet, cuddly man with it does. a slightly weird accent. Mm-hmm. And... There is no way that a sportsman of his caliber, particularly with the career that he had, is just sweet and cuddly and nice. Mm. Now, I'm not saying he's a bastard. What no. I am saying is insightful, that perhaps. It wouldn't surprise me if he was saying to them, you know, look, ahead of what's coming up, and it, see, I, I need some guarantees me, about things. Well, well, I feel, given the narrative, and maybe that's that's your point, it would really surprise me. I I feel like the last person who would be actively pushing for He just comes in, it. he shrugs his shoulders. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to be here. It's all fine. That's no, what I think's I happening. Mean, that's, I mean, I can't believe that, that anyone's that naive, let alone someone like him. The other thing we must consider as well is that uh, Manchester United is a, uh, is a public company, stock market, stock market floated. Yeah. That it's, potentially, it's potentially the reason that uh, they required stability uh, in, in that area. I don't know. I mean, I know things have only improved since he's taken over in terms yeah. of, the sh- of the stock price. Yeah. So maybe they thought, maybe their analysts said, it's going to go up more if you confirm this now and they do it for money. I mean, that's, it's probably something possible. boring like that, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I mean, the, 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 you know, obviously the big, the big landmark coming up is, is the Champions League clash um, with Barcelona. Yeah. Is it possible that, that this was something where the playing staff wanted yeah. a guarantee of stability? I don't know. There was, uh, somebody in the Times made the uh, insightful observation, potentially, that... Sorry about the drills, folks. There is uh, some building work ongoing in our office space, which isn't really supposed to be happening at this time of day. No. But uh, hopefully it will stop. And it's stopped. Someone, someone in the Times made the, the insightful observation that potentially... The players are so keen to have him appointed because he is malleable, because he is somebody that they treat in a more familiar way. And yeah, I can imagine that after Jose Mourinho, there's definitely a relief in that. But By that, do you mean if I'm Luke Shaw and I knock on your door and you're Oli Solskjaer and I say, I would like to uh, run further up the pitch than I did yesterday, he might say, oh, well, let's talk about it rather than get out of my office. Yeah, possibly. Or... Or even to the extent of, um, you know, potentially a, a player thinking, well, I've been told to do this. I don't think it's necessarily the right idea. And I know he's not going to kill me if I don't do it. Right. Um, I don't know, because I think... You I know, want to it, come on to that a little bit later. Because it, does, it does seem like players... It seems like players are doing things for reasons. And mm-hmm. you can only assume that those reasons are coming from him or potentially from, and we still don't really know how this all works, but, you know, Solskjaer is backed by Mike Phelan, who is an extraordinarily experienced yeah. and intelligent coach. I'd, and I'd also say they'd be, less likely, they'd be less likely to go up to Mike Phelan and say, I think this is different. Sure, he I wouldn't would say, go anywhere near Mike Phelan. I don't care what you some think. Some sort of complaint, no. Do what Ollie has said. No, I, I suppose my point being that, that is it necessarily what Ollie is saying, mm. you know, and, yeah. and there are... Yeah. 
there are certainly he's very keen to make it uh, he, whenever he it's a collaborative thing and he, yeah. he, he he's it's notable in press conferences with him that whenever he slips into saying i'm very pleased or or you know i'm the manager he very quickly corrects that by saying it, it's a collective thing acknowledging that there's I mean, other what, players there other players other coaches there yeah I, what, what, what yeah I've, I've been looking at um at bielsa recently um for some stuff and and again, it, it's clear that while while Bielsa was was very insistent on rehearsing certain aspects of plays, you know, situational responses, he would also talk to the players. And if things weren't going well, for example, he'd say, you know, well, what are your thoughts about how we might change it? We have to do this together. Yeah. So even if he wasn't necessarily actually inviting or listening to tactical advice fostering a sense of collaboration was hugely important, particularly when there was a big tactical change in the offing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it may be that Solskjaer's kind of looked at, particularly as a kind of rebound against the autocratic Mourinho, but yeah. as a general way of... It's de- soft democracy. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and potentially we, we have to accept the fact that actually there just is somebody in football management who is as... Yeah, nice and yeah and bright Maybe. and chirpy as he seems. There's also another, you know, a much longer thought here uh, regarding the the sort of adapt adaptation of uh, of player personalities over the years. Um, and it's probably fair to say. I mean, we might need to do a thesis to prove this, but it's probably fair to say that there are more players in the modern game today who are more likely to have an opinion about what they think the team should be doing as a whole yeah. and be pushy with that than they would have been 40 years ago. So, so maybe the idea of a sort of diplomatic team yeah. where the manager, and as I said, we will come back to this because I want to talk about the idea of well, there's the absence of like obvious hierarchy there, but maybe the idea of a diplomatic team isn't so strange. But there, there's, let, there's just one thing to say on this very quickly. If, if listeners haven't read Ben Littleton's book, Edge, um, which is actually a slightly hybrid, weird book where it, it talks about translating things that have worked in sport into the world of business. Mm. But he makes that case very emphatically around Didier Deschamps and the France national team and how Deschamps has evolved as a man-manager to basically deal with this new breed of player who is right. as not as concerned necessarily with themselves, but... but certainly sees himself as a brand. They're encouraged to be. As well as a footballer. Um, and that it is more discursive. You can't just go in and tell people to bring their fucking dinner anymore. That yeah. doesn't happen. And mm. and if it does One happen, for the kids there. a lot of yeah, a lot of players will turn around and go, mate, I'm gonna go somewhere else. And mm. and I think if you're if you're ahead of that curve or with Solshire by virtue of having being a player at that club, having worked with some of the youth team, you know, having not a massive age gap between you and some of your first team squad members mm. from what, 12, 14 years in some instances, yeah. that is going to be a much easier bridge yeah. to cross. And that does make a lot of sense. It's a podcast. Let's have it now. Structures out the window. I think it's weird that the players refer to him as Ollie. And I know that sounds like it's not that big a deal it's not particularly important and perhaps it is just because of the the change has been so significant between the two uh, the manager proceeding and the manager following Jose Mourinho to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer there is going to be a different way in which the players have or enjoy relationships with the manager but it's notable to me that in particularly in 
post-match um, interviews, when the players, I mean, we noticed, uh, you know, it was the, it was one of the match of the day segments after the um, the game against Watford at the weekend, which admittedly n- neither Alex or I watched in full because we weren't planning on talking about Manchester United today. Um, but at the end of that uh, little segment, there was Luke Shaw who was making pr- probably an understandably pointed comment, which seemed seemed to be, if not directed at, at least about Mourinho. He was saying that you know it's nice to have a manager who listens and who gives you confidence. And as a player, that's doesn't, all you doesn't need. Doesn't call you fat. Doesn't call you fat. Uh, and yeah, doesn't sort of, you know, constantly out you when you're not there in, in, uh, in the press, in press conferences. It's a strange thing. But at the same time, the way that Luke Shaw then goes on to talk about Ollie is in a very informal way where he describes him as Ollie. There's, we've heard this from many of the players that they're all delighted for him. And it sounds more like a group of players who are talking about a colleague than it does about a manager. And as we said, maybe that's just part of the new modern football. Maybe a more diplomatic approach is the right thing to do. Maybe it's not a cause for concern, but I would think, for example, and I don't know whether Manchester United supporters are thinking this, but I would wonder if when things inevitably at some point don't, aren't going as well as they are now, and I'm not saying things fall off a cliff, but w- when there's a run of losses and there's an obvious question mark and a loss of confidence, does the different position that the manager holds in terms of the sort of structure of authority or the hierarchy at the club make a difference in terms of the players questioning of him? If it's Mourinho and, well, Mourinho is obviously a bad example, but let's forget about what happened. If you have a more autocratic manager who has a lot of experience and is less approachable, but the players have been sort of trained to have faith in them. Uh, are they more likely to get away with poor uh, periods of results? If you are a manager like Ollie, where your players call you by your first name. I mean, my girlfriend teaches in a primary school where they all call her by her first name. And coming from my background, I, f- I find it really weird. Mm. And I think, but well, are they not, you know, don't, do they not, why not respect not you. Her. I mean, yeah, and she says, "Well, you know, the, the, yeah, I, she doesn't want them to fear her, and they do respect her." And she, again, it's a similar situation. Spend the rest of the time talking about my personal life, but she's often talking about fostering a a sort of team feeling yeah. in the classroom where people are pulling for each other, and there is no real. There's obviously ends and begins with her, yeah. but they don't call her Miss whatever. They call her by her first name, and. Uh, Maybe, yeah, if there's a mutiny, if there's a if there's a poor run of exam results, for example, it doesn't work. I've like the analogy stops working. It doesn't, there. and uh, yeah, you, you and get, none you of get those my kids point. Are get do you not no, think? I, do you I not do think it's in more point. danger? Is it not more delicate situation to manage if it is more diplomatic? Mm, I think. I think it's obviously. I mean, don't you sometimes want a a dictator to come in and just say, "Look, we're staying in the EU, or we're leaving the EU. Let's do it." Should and we, then, should we not? Bring the, up no, no. But there's the theory of like every seventeenth year, you just have a dictator who yeah. gives it back to democracy afterwards. Okay, solves all the problems that democracy can't solve in the in the intervening time. But this is what I was saying to you in the back of the car the other day, and and you told me I was being kind of unreasonable. Anyway, mm. this is by the by. I think. I think it's interesting. Okay, so this is something that I don't know, and and I, you know, I guess well, none of us do. We're guessing. Of, well, you don't know what I'm going to say because, as ever, you've interrupted me. Hmm. Um, what was his relationship like at Mulder with the players there? Was it as chummy? Was it as convivial? Did they call him Ollie? Because I think it, yeah, someone does know that. It someone knows that, yeah. but it's not me. It's not um, us. And and it would be instructive to know whether this is a. 
a style that he has and that he's brought with him or it's a response to the circumstances in which he found himself. If it, if it isn't a response to the circumstances, then it's coincidental because the response to the circumstances would be exactly this. Well, to a degree. I mean, I like honestly, I do think I do think there's something in in the naming. You know, bear in mind that people like um, you know, Fabio Capello or whatever would insist on being called Mr and mm. would not <laughs> like you, you I'd bear, insist on it. Barely approach the man, let alone sure. you know talk to him about in, in that sort of familiar way. Yeah. So I, I do think there really is something there. We don't know what sort of alliances he has in the dressing room. Whether his style of man management is entirely inclusive, or whether he has a couple of kind of people that that you know maybe nudge those who aren't towing the line exactly. Maybe everyone's towing the line, and it is all fine. I, I think. I think it's not a question. I think it's a really astute question to ask. I don't think it's one that can be answered until mm. such a time as things do go wrong, because then you're going to find out, you know, is he leaning on? You see, this for me, one of the issues with Manchester United as a squad is that there aren't, to my mind, massively strong characters in that squad. There's there's not somebody that you can look at and and see them in quite the same sort of way as you have throughout most of the other teams. So, you know, you've got people like Ashley Young and Valencia who are very experienced and have been at the team quite some time. But apart from that, you've got you've got players who are really good mm. and you've got someone like maybe it is Pogba, um, but there are obviously question marks around how long he's going to stay at the club and so on. But but he, you know, he he's a sort of an inspiring leader rather than a, a, a you know, a kind of the manager's man in the dressing room mm. sort of leader. So it's it's really, really tricky to know. I, I think in terms of the actual regular playing squad. Yeah. With the exception maybe of Ander Herrera, who again seems more of a does what he's told, does it very well, does it in inspirationally sort of play, as opposed to necessarily a leader on the pitch. Uh, yes, absolutely. That you, you, The obvious names that you might think of, maybe Ashley Young is one of them, maybe Juan Mata is one of them, but Juan Mata isn't starting every game. But, but also Juan Mata strikes me as being, I'm quite simply one of the nicest people in the world, but, but again, not, you know, there's no, say for example, like with when we, we were talking before about about Mourinho's Chelsea, yeah. you know, clearly there, there were people like Terry Lampard, Drogba. There were people who would really emphatically lay down the law. No doubt about that. So who, who okay, but right. let's look over across town. Yeah. Who's doing that in the Manchester City team? Because I don't get that strong impression from any of them. Is that player a player of the past? Uh, well, I mean, I, mean, you I think, think, like, I think the, the first thing that comes to mind is Troy Deeney, for example, as a player in the Premier League who might have that sort of position uh, on the on the field. Sure, but. I'm not saying about that necessarily in terms of it being a, a shouty person. You know, it, it may be somebody who's... Car- I, I mean, with Man City, Vincent Company, although he's not really playing a great not deal. Playing. No, I know, but he's still there and he's still around things... Yes, I agree. Man City is a slightly odd one, but the, you know there are definitely Liverpool. people at Liverpool. Well, Henderson, yeah, clearly Van Dijk will be doing that. I I don't doubt that Firmino is fairly vocal as well. You know, it's sort of I'm not, I'm not saying that necessarily it's people who are big and shouty and aggressive, but mm. there will be 
there will be clear leaders within a squad, whether they're leader by nature of, of personality, of ability, whatever it is. What about Jesse Lingard? Um, More influential than he was a year ago, you would imagine. If, yeah, if this was If this was a, a governmental political party, would be talking about him uh, moving into the uh, moving but, into the cabinet. But then again, Lingard is. I mean, I I'm a huge fan of Lingard's. I think he's a a very very intelligent player, and and I think he potentially because of the way he thinks about the game, it is sort of captain material. But because of the way that Solskjaer is mixing up his attacking, uh, particularly his attacking trio, mm. Lingard's not guaranteed a place either. Nemanja so, Matic. I, I mean, I think Matic isn't playing anywhere near his peak anyway, and he never struck me as that sort of player. He seems rather quiet. He does. He does. He seems... He's functional. Mm. Um, mm. You know. Okay, well, let's talk about um, tactics then, because we released a video on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's Manchester United tactics uh, a week or two ago now. Um, as I said in the introduction... We wanted to wait for a little while uh, to make sure, partly, that we'd seen them play a few bigger games. I mean, uh, let's not forget that Solskjaer was, well, I suppose you could say lucky enough to have a reasonable run of fixtures uh, to open his uh, managerial career at United. But of course, the, the first big challenge, I think, was against Spurs. Arsenal in the FA Cup were in there as well, and um, PSG in the, in the Champions League, and after which we felt we were more capable of uh, making a video that showed the whole picture rather than just the positives of a team playing against. Does, yeah, there's no point in rushing in to just get the numbers because you're there first. That's how you make mistakes like some of those videos have done. Not mentioning anyone in particular. <laughs> cut that out. Um, <laughs> Don't cut it out, it's no. true. Uh, but what we have noticed um, is that there are... Well, he's changed the changed the team quite a lot, and he's changed formations quite a lot. But there are sort of distinct uh, there are distinct themes that that run between those different those different uh, adaptations. Run us through what they are in terms of formation, because it's I suppose it's a way that is an easy way in for people to understand what we're talking about. Yeah, I, I, so I think I think formation is is one of those slightly, I don't want to say misleading things. But it is a bit. It, it, it's, it's a framework around which you can then try and see what people are doing. And You often say to me, it's what they do when they're defending. Uh, yeah. And yeah. then when they're attacking, the, you know, it's kind of all bets are off in some ways. Well, uh, yes. I mean, there's two, there's usually two formations. So, for example, if you had a, a four, three, right, take what they did at the weekend, for example, uh, this, what United did against Watford. So... A 4-3-3 that defensively often looked like a 4-5-1, but with the player that was centrally in the kind of, in the hole, because you could call it a diamond as well. Are we talking about the front line of the three here? Right, but assuming that matter is counted sort of as part of that, which I know is something we're going to talk about a bit as well. He's then drifting out to the right, Martial's drifting out to the left, Rashford's staying up, but then that's also changing around a little bit. So what are they looking to do? It's more instructive to to say how are they responding to situations in terms of uh, that that are then facilitated by the way they're actually stood on the pitch, um, and I think this is one of the things that Solskjaer has done is that he has tweaked that quite intelligently from game to game. So while you might see a fairly consistent use of something like a 
4-3-1-2 or a 4-3-3, depending on where that central player is, whether they're a striker or whether they're a false nine or, as you were half-jokingly saying, a false ten. Um, the way those guys actually do stuff depends on opposition. So sometimes, you know, if he's playing like he did against Spurs with the team that that have their fullbacks pushing really, really high, he'll get those two wingers who are in some ways actually strikers to stay high and wide and then look to attack the channel. It's Martial and Rashford in that case. Right. In other games, you know, Rashford will stay much more central. Then there'll be more sort of movement into the right half space from whoever's playing in the 10 position, like a Jesse Lingard or a Juan Mata. Because a lot of their attacking movement comes down the left, doesn't it? Um, well, again, it depends on the game. You know, against PSG away, it was coming through the centre. Mm-hmm. Um, they they certainly show a general preponderance towards attacking on the left. That's partly because when he's been using a three-man midfield, that's where Pogba is on the left-hand side of that. But then again, you know, if you're if you're stacking your attacking on the left-hand side and looking to retain possession out there, part of the reason you're doing that is to create opportunities on the right with a quick switch of play, which is something he does. And we've seen a number of goals scored by Rashford from exactly that situation. Exactly that. Who was Um, on the right. And, you know, again, against PSG, uh, in that away leg where Lukaku was sort of stationed on the right to attack the, the... either the left-sided PSG centre-back or the space between that left-sided PSG centre-back and, and the space outside, mm. um, uh, you know, the, the passes that were coming to Lukaku were either direct from David De Gea or they were sort of uh, angled upwards and across from Andreas Pereira on the left-hand side but tucking in. So again, it, it's coming from the left, but it's it's attacking a space that's out on the right that's... Be- been created by moving everybody on the PSG side into that space on the left. Mm. Um, so he does stuff like that. You know, this this is not, and again, we go back to whether it's Solskjaer or it's Mike Phelan or it's Michael Carrick or it's the players. I mean, it doesn't, to a degree, it doesn't matter in the sense that what you see on the pitch is working a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Who's actually coming up with that, whether it's a collaborative exercise or, I mean. Kind of irrelevant. To me, it's kind of irrelevant because unless you're actually in the dressing room and you know the answer to it, mm. all, all you can see are the results of that thinking and the execution of that thinking on the pitch. And in which there's enough consistency for us to tell that it's coming from the that same it place. Is, that there is thinking. Yes. And again, this is one of the questions that you always ask when you're looking at tactics and this applies to absolutely anybody. And it's one of the reasons why deferring a video until a team has played a reasonable number of games is always sensible mm-hmm. is that we can sit there and watch things happening and unless those things are repeated often enough and I mean crucially for me sometimes actually when I'm watching games to analyze them tactically I want to see something being tried and not working Mm -hmm. because then at least I know that it's a deliberate attempt to try that thing and and you you've made the point several times um I'm trying to think who was it it was Lingard is it Lingard set up a goal against Spurs, but also the Rashford goal against Watford? You've referred to the goals they're trying to score. Yeah. And I think that is really key. You can look at aspects of particularly their counter-attacking play and see that that is what United are trying to do yeah. currently. And in this case against Watford, the lovely pass came from Luke Shaw. In the case against Tottenham, I think it was Jesse Lingard who dropped off Lingard up broke up play and then released someone else. Passed it to Pogba, who made the lovely pass. Yeah. Yes. And and we've seen that a number of times yeah. as well. It's pretty much exactly what you were just describing, stacking up on the left, 
pulling players out, pulling players across and having Rashford make those kind of line-breaking runs over from the right. It works really well, doesn't it? I mean, it's interesting with that Rashford goal and, and sure that it wasn't, it wasn't actually play that was built up on that side because obviously Shaw pushed forwards and and it was a counter-attack yeah. pressed it was a counter-attack but but then that's kind of what it was against Spurs but Rashford is so used to making yeah that particular run it's been so drilled into him either as a response to broken play or as a response to specific formulated play on the left that that's what he's going to do anyway yeah and Shaw knows that's what he's going to do yeah and the the execution of that pass was fantastic it half works because that, you know, because the execution is good, but it also half works because Rashford's expecting it. Well, he's anticipating that they'll be, that, that they'll win the ball back. And that's exactly what happened against Spurs yeah. as well. I mean, it, it wasn't a long process of build up. Lingard and, won the ball, yeah. gave it to Pogba and very quickly it was up there, but Rashford was already on the way. And to me that if, if you were to, to distill the difference between Mourinho's United and Solskjaer's United down into one factor, it would be off the ball movement in anticipation of something happening, mm. which when I watch Mourinho's United, I just didn't see enough of no. at all to suggest that there was not attacking intent, but any kind of trust in the ability of the team to transition from one phase of play to another. Yeah. Whereas now I think Solskjaer, whether again, Solskjaer, Phelan, whomsoever, um, and player confidence, I think, is important in this, that the players both anticipate something going right so that they have an opportunity. Rashford makes that run because he mm. knows it might happen. He stops defending and starts attacking when Man United is still That's defending. That's the other point, is that he now feels relaxed enough and focused enough on what his job is to think, I don't have to run back and get into shape here, and, and by shape I mean defensive shape, and and sit and press and blah, blah, blah. I'm going to wait for the possibility that this might go right and yeah. we might win the ball back. And you saw that and again. those are two big differences. And against Watford, there were various examples. Um, again, I stress in the highlights. So there are, <laughs> there are plenty of examples uh, throughout the rest of the season also since yeah. Solskjaer took over. But against Watford, you saw um, at times when United were defending deeply, Martial and Rashford were still staying up. You know, yeah. And that, that's, that's as slight as it is. You could even uh, you could even discuss the difference of the two uh, managers as as simple as that. You know, two players stay up, two players don't stay up. Yeah, and and also you know in some ways the response to that because that's clearly been actively encouraged. Whereas you you kind of think if if you if you rob United of that ability to counterattack, and particularly with Pogba, they've they've got somebody who can launch these fantastic long passes. I mean, we've seen Luke Shaw do it, we've seen Pereira do it, we've seen others, but Pogba really is a master at that. You know, it's it's a, a straight decision between do we play to that strength or do we have a manager on the touchline screaming, no, 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 get back, drop into shape, drop into shape, defend. Mm. Of course there are times when you have to defend, but yeah, of course there are times you have to defend and it's you know it's incumbent upon you to go somewhere difficult and get a result but the reason that that united won at psg 3-1 was not simply because they defended well it was also because they were looking to counterattack they were looking to exploit those situations whereas possibly under Mourinho, it would have been about going there and, and being even more reactive not as quick to look to break um so yeah you know i think i think you have to play to your strengths and and if United are not 
as great a defensive team. And when people talk about where he needs to strengthen in the summer, it is largely around centre-back, for example, possibly another central defensive midfielder. So, you know, they know what they're good at and their good players are Rashford, Martial, Pogba. Yeah, it makes sense. Lots of talk about Kaladu Koulibaly. Uh, yes, I mean, in the way that people just look at who are the best five centre-backs in the world and pick one of them. Sure. That seems to be what the big clubs do, though. So. <laughs> I mean, kind of, yeah. I don't know how different that is from the papers, but sure. Well, but, uh, I mean, it depends. So, you know, if you look at Koulibaly, one of his strengths is is carrying the ball forwards, which is something that he did a lot for Napoli under Sarri, and possibly one of the reasons that Sarri is struggling a little bit at Chelsea is because he doesn't have a, a centre-back that can break the press in quite the same way. So there's too much onus on Jorginho to do it. Um if that's part of what Solskjaer wants to do, then yeah, absolutely, he should go for Koulibaly because he's a brilliant defender. But you can't just, you know, it's not like playing football manager and having a budget of 250 million and just getting anyone. No, but you do know in the tactics video that Victor Lindelof is carrying the ball through the first line of defence when he's playing frequently. Yep. And then actually, you know, going back to those goals we were just talking about, the ones that were started by sort of Luke Shaw and Luke Shaw. Luke Shaw, Fabian Shaw. Uh, Luke Shaw and yeah. um, Jesse Lingard and Paul Pogba. Um, that area highlighted in the video between uh, what would be Man United's line of defence and midfield or the opposition's line of attack and, and midfield is often a danger area where moves like that start, particularly in counter-attacking goals. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you note during the video that Victor Lindelof particularly is given licence to carry the ball beyond that first line of defence. Um, and create overloads in, in that space. So if that's something that they're already doing, then I suppose Kaladu yeah. Koulibaly would be quite a good fit there. Yeah, I, yes. I'm, I'm being a bit facetious around that. I think it's more, you know, I think teams... It's just a newspaper rumour, basically. Well, it's less that, and it's more that United's approach to transfers has been so hit and miss of late that I can understand that they'd they'd sort of look at, you know, a... a Gold.com article on the five best centre-backs in the world and just try and buy one of them. Well, it's full of positives for fans. Let's talk about one of those negatives. One of the criticisms of Solskjaer's appointment has been that there remains uh, no technical director, no footballing director, um, and no buffer between the manager of the squad or the coach of the squad and the owners or uh, Ed Woodward. Yeah, There was a report, uh, I think it was over the weekend or last week, uh, which I read the headline of and have no idea how substantiated it is, so now I'm going to talk about it, um, that Mike Phelan was a, a name in contention for technical director. I wasn't aware that Manchester United had formalised a uh, mm. um, uh, an action to go and do that. But it, it's one of the things that people say, partly because the biggest criticism of the club over the last sort of five or six years since Ferguson's um, departure, but but a key since David Gill's departure has been the lack of footballing knowledge above the manager and those transfers that we're talking about, um, you know, the kind of scattergun approach is partly because of chopping and changing of managers, but I think it's also partly because the club is determined to go out and buy big names, mm. whether or not the manager it says that they're particularly useful or specifically useful to what they want to do. I, I think both of those points are really important. Um, so firstly, post-Ferguson, and, you know, Ferguson's record in the transfer market was not, you know, unimpeachable either. He he made some errors. Um, but, you know, 
he's replaced by Moyes. Moyes defaulted to quite a few of the players that he, or a couple of the players that he knew from um, yeah. Everton. He tried to secure a couple more. There was the whole Farago around and the Herrera, which was Whoa. very much around the mismanagement of mm. the procedure of a transfer rather than anything else. To Moyes' credit, he also said recently that uh, Tony Kroos had agreed to join before he then went and joined Real Madrid. Yeah. Well, I mean, who knows if that's true or not. Um, and then you had, you know, you, you, Van Hall, Mourinho, you know, these are, these are people who are seeking to do different things with different types of players. Yeah. So it does make it very, very complicated. And it is one of the single biggest arguments for giving a manager time yeah. is that they will look to construct a squad that plays the sort of football they want to play. But we know also that there are clubs that operate in a different manner, whereby a coach has... Um, has say and some influence in terms of transfers and they mm. might be able to send a list over of the players that they would like to get ideally but that those decisions are made higher up um, we know that yeah. other clubs operate in no, that definitely. way but I, so I mean, I do we not it's... think that the departure of David Gill who was then replaced by Ed Woodward a man with no footballing experience who albeit has done very well at what his job was which yeah. was to improve the commercial side of the company um, is probably out of his depth when it comes or potentially out of his depth when it comes to situations like this which is why there's been a call for a technical director which is you know something being done implemented at a lot of other clubs at the yeah moment. so uh, the first thing to to say the short answer to that is yes yeah. um, i think it depends one of the odd things about football is that you have different people doing the same job with different titles and people with the same title doing different jobs mm. So, for example, if you're looking at appointing Mike Phelan as a technical director, to me that says more about overseeing youth development, scouting pathways to the first team, given what Phelan's traditionally done. Mm. That's not the same as a sporting director or a director of football. However, at some other clubs, a technical director will will do those things too or will only do some of it. So, so yeah, it's, it's really knows. confusing. You, you talk about when one reads about job titles, it's, it's sometimes unclear what that actually means. Even for, even for professional experience of TIFO attempting to right. approach clubs or working with clubs. Absolutely. Uh, they're all called different they're things. They're all called different things. The same person doing the same job at yep. a different club has a completely different job title. Yes. It's not easy. Or the same title across two clubs represents as completely different job roles. Yes. So what, but to go back to your original question, the short answer being yes, uh, United needs somebody who understands how I think mostly how to oversee and then deliver a transfer strategy. Um, like you say, if if you want to have an official mattress partner in Indonesia, then Edward Wood's your man. But if you want to ensure that you're picking up good talent and recruiting either good player, I mean, you know, it depends what your strategy is. Are you looking to buy and then sell at a profit? Are you looking to recruit, you know, even when Real Madrid were putting the Galacticos together, you know, there, there was also the sense that the spine of that side would still be youth academy graduates and it would be a sort of 5-6 split. Largely Spanish. Largely Spanish. That was pretty much delivered. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that happened. And that's part of a strategy. So what the, the first thing I would be doing if I were taking over that job at United is to say, and this would be an inclusive conversation involving Solskjaer, involving the commercial side of the club, involving other coaches, what are we looking to achieve in terms of the way we play football? Mm -hmm. And what are we looking to achieve in terms of how we treat, and this will sound really 
almost nasty, but players as commodities. Are, are we signing players partly because they will open access to different markets? Are we signing yeah, them value. to get them for sell-on value? Are we looking to take a player who is between, you know, maybe so we get them for a three to four year contract between the ages of 25 and 29, which is their kind of peak period. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what is every different part of the club seeking to achieve? And then being the one person who synthesizes all of that and oversees how that is delivered in terms of in terms of scouting, in terms of acquisition, in terms of negotiation. By building robots that will ensure that visualization of the idea. Possibly robots would work, yes. I mean, they couldn't be less effective than Ed Woodward. No. Well, let's go back to talking about uh, tactics. I could talk about the Glazers all day, but I feel like I do that every single time we record a podcast about Manchester United. You want to talk about false nines, don't you? Let me say one thing about the Glazers first. I just want to say one thing about the Glazers first. I think... uh, if they've sort of lucked out in the most magnificent way this season because they're very, I mean, they had to part ways with the man who was very expensive to get rid of, so that's unfortunate. Uh, but on the plus side, they have a manager who is incredibly cheap, uh, who I imagine, in terms of wages, probably isn't anywhere near rivaling what Mourinho was earning. No. Uh, they, he he's also has a, a commitment to youth players which will mean that uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be quite cheap for Manchester United to do that over the next few years. And also, the best thing is that the fans are all really on board with that because that's what they love. So it's, uh, it sort of looks like they could spend half as much money as they have been doing recently, mm. and people like them more because of it. And, and it's, it's possible, again, we, we're sort of inferring from the way the club has been run previously that, that this is more by luck than judgment. It is entirely plausible that they have realised that actually what they have been doing hasn't worked and they've made a deliberate decision to privilege youth development, positivity, somebody with an association to the club, all of those things, rather than him being the cheapest and oh, easily sure. available I think option. The reason we, I we say that, know. I think they're sort of happily balanced together. Quite possibly, yeah. I mean, it would indicate a degree of thought and sensitivity to their situation that hasn't previously been displayed. I just don't believe it. <laughs> okay. I don't believe it. I think they got really lucky that he came in and did a fantastic job. And I think they were looking down the barrel of having to either spend an awful lot of money trying to coach uh, coax mm. um, uh, Pochettino away from Spurs <laughs> or left without too many other options in a world in which the Dan goes back to Real Madrid nine months after he left. You know? Right. And, and let's... I, 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 what, what was this summer going to look like? Yeah. If Solskjaer hadn't worked out with no Champions League football, which is, by the way, still certainly a possibility. Absolutely. With no Champions League football, almost certainly under Mourinho. Um, and uh, get, get going into the summer, having to spend a lot of money with a dissatisfied squad, likely with a number of profile players who want to leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've lucked out massively. They have. And, and I think if you look at the way that, um, that player recruitment has been conducted, at least in part, you know, you can't, you can't assume that manager recruitment was conducted any more scientifically or as scientifically. Big names, um, big names, right? I mean, first, firstly, yeah. it was... And, and, and Solskjaer's, Solskjaer's key attributes were availability and, you know, knowing where the training ground was. Yeah. And that people like him and, and he might cheer yeah. people up. Right, basically. Which I think is, is now, as a result of his achievements, is now underselling what he is. But Completely. at the time, it certainly yeah. wasn't. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm not for a second no, saying no, no, that's not. all yeah. he is. Mm. 
But when he at came the time in, they made the decision, it was absolutely, and and we you know we've referred to it a few times before, but this was this was a club seeking to change effectively a PR narrative around the club rather than a footballing decision. You They're know, dealing I, with football in a business way, which is exactly the way that they've dealt with everything. Yes, and I, and I think they had probably written off a, a fair degree of the rest of the season, probably written off Champions League football and thought, you know, basically we just need to get the fans to like us again because this has been fucking toxic. Yeah. Uh, and And to get the playing stuff. Because again, you know, you've got... While there are elements of that squad that are maybe not up to par, you also have really, really good players who were getting extraordinarily pissed off mm-hmm. and could walk. And you think if, if United over the course of a summer lost Martial, Pogba, Herrera, De Gea, I, I doubt Rashford would go anywhere because he's so devoted. But you you suddenly cull four or five players of that ilk from that squad. And they look awful. Yeah. <laughs> and that's yeah. that's very easily what could have happened. That's an average team without yeah, those players. At best. Yeah. So, you know, I think I think it's difficult to uh, overstate the importance of changing the narrative at the time. But mm-hmm. like you say, he's definitely demonstrated that he is more than that now. Sure. Okay. Back to tactics ever so briefly. Let's talk about the, uh, the sort of false nine thing that we were mentioning before, you know. You said that we jokingly described it as a, as a false 10. You you did that. Well, sure, I did that. But we were here together. We called Fellaini a false 10 before. Yes, which also made sense in a different way. Correct. Uh, but the reason we're talking about it in this way, you know, as you said, at the, at the beginning of our sort of tactical discussion, uh, Solskjaer has sort of shown a um, an interest in playing teams in a 4-3-3 with the central striker, who traditionally uh, might have been Lukaku, let's say, uh, that role being filled often by Jesse Lingard, who actually isn't playing as a striker at all. He's not quite playing as a midfielder at the tip of a diamond, so we can't really call it a 4-4-2 diamond. The two wide players, often Martial and Rashford, are playing very wide uh, with quite a lot of space in the middle. The reason I jokingly said it's a false 10 is because he's not really a false 9 either. There's, no. It's somewhere in between front of the diamond of the midfield, number 10, False nine and number nine, somewhere between all of those things. And often in the six and eight position as well, making those little tackles with Paul Pogba Mm. swapping in place. So it's quite a fluid area of the pitch. We were trying to think of examples of other teams that were doing this. And I'll take you through our thought process. We thought, and these are not accurate reflections initially, but we're thinking of uh, Premier League teams recently who play in a similar style. One of them is Liverpool. Uh, with Roberto Firmino playing in that kind of, uh, not so deep, I would say, but more of a dropped-off false dime role with uh, Mane and Salah either side. Another one was Roy Hodgson when he first took over at Crystal Palace, and there was Wilfred Zaha and uh, Balassi, both playing in a 4-4-2, but very wide. Although you made Townsend the point, as well. and Townsend, sorry. And you made the point that actually it was the, the midfielders, wide midfielders behind them who were cutting inside more than a false nine. They didn't really have one in that team because they only had... Uh, Benteke, who was dropped for reasons of being a poor footballer. <laughs> being just not an actual nine at all. Sure. Yeah. Um, then beyond that, we were thinking about Spain. Yep. And that's maybe not quite again, because it was, the, it was the famous team with, what, 25 midfielders playing in it. But Well, that's, that's the difference with that Spain side, mm. is that with what United, the, 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 the Fabregas, Lingard, or Mata, 
Fabregas comparison sort of stacks up. Yeah. The difference being that United have got strikers yeah. ahead of... I mean, I know Martial sort of a winger as well, but mm. that's what they're being asked to do. Martial does play a little bit wider to start with and does drift in and attack the space like a kind of an inverted winger. But, but yeah. Spain had... Iniesta, David Silva playing in those positions in that 2012 squad. Yeah. They're not strikers. No. So that's not the same. It's not the same. The other no. thing, the only other thing that we thought of was 2007, 2008 Manchester United with Cristiano Ronaldo, who played in a sort of false nine, only admittedly for a half of the season with Tevez and Rooney playing in those wider roles. And I believe it was Rooney and Ronaldo that used to swap fairly often, so it wasn't so stable. The issue we have with that comparison is that Ronaldo was the clear focal point of that team, and Jesse Lingard isn't in the same way. So um, I'm not sure we can think of one that's exactly the same, certainly in the, in the Premier League era that comes to mind. I'm sure there is one. Yeah. I'm I mean, not saying there also, isn't one. There's a degree of fluidity so that, you know, as I said, with the, the marking at Watford, you know, Mata was dropping out to the right-hand side yeah. to defend. Lingard will do that sometimes. They've used Lukaku as a central striker, but pushing wide out onto the right. Yeah. Like, you know, I think I think the key point that you made there, and, and it sort of reflects on what we were saying about formations and systems earlier, is that it's fluid and it's flexible. Yeah. And that requires a plan from the coach to say, this is roughly what we're going to do. It also requires players who are intelligent. And to me, it's no surprise that it's particularly it's Lingard and Mata that occupy that slightly weird space. Yeah. Um, because they're two really smart footballers. Mm. Uh, and I'm not saying that, say, for example, you know, I mean, I think Herrera could probably play in that space too because he's a very smart footballer. Pogba probably could. Um, I, Phil I just, Jones. Phil Jones, definitely. I'd say so. <laughs> Phil Jones is a frustrated libero. <laughs> isn't he? He's the Franz Beckenbauer of Old Trafford. But it's um, not dissimilar to Liverpool, and that's the point that it, I wanted to come down to. It's not dissimilar, but I think, like you said, you know, you're you're not expecting that player to get forward and be as much as Firmino. Uh, not nearly as much as Firmino. Let and, me ask you this though. And right? again, Salah, you know, Salah and Mane basically are converted, or they're not converted. Sure. They are wingers. There's a conversation though as to whether or not that is a, a, a system that is devised as a result of personnel, Mane and Salah, who are incredible footballers with a lot of pace and good finishing ability, right? Or that that is a system which is designed and had players sourced to fit into it, right? Because it's it's no coincidence, I would say, or maybe it is, but no coincidence that we see more teams using a false nine these days with those strikers playing wider. And we note with Rashford and Martial that often... They're either playing outside of the fullback entirely or between the fullback and the centre-back on their respective side. What are the benefits of, of having two strikers who are playing as wide as they are? And thinking as well of examples like Roy Hodgson's Crystal Palace, like what's the benefit of having players in those positions? You see, my answer to that would be slightly pedantic, which is to say that you shouldn't think about it as playing two strikers out wide. You should think about it in terms of having players out wide who are capable of finishing and whose remit includes moving into that central space. And I think what, what we see increasingly, particularly with good teams, 
Um, and I'm not saying that, that Palace aren't a good team, but that was more born of, you know, looking to rectify the fact that they couldn't um, score through Benteke at all. Yeah. But say with, um, say at Spurs, right? Harry Kane. Harry Kane is a fantastic goal scorer. No doubt about that at all. But increasingly he's being encouraged to drop off and link play as well, which he does very successfully for England too, because there are players, particularly like um, Song Hyun Min, who can run in beyond that. Well, Lucas. Or, or Yeah, Lucas is not as good at it. But it, So it, it's more about looking holistically at a front three and saying in an ideal world, what we have is three players who are all intelligent, who can all interchange positions, who can work off one another. So there is no longer a very traditional centre forward who stays level with... Um, you know the the centre back, and even a, even a team like say we've we've looked at Eintracht Frankfurt, right? Mm-hmm. Eintracht Frankfurt have an attacking three. It's just it's more triangular than you know a, a tip and two wide players. But the amount of movement between those two those three players, even though Luka Jovic is quite a classic number nine, is enormous. Yeah, you know teams are increasingly finding that the way to attack the opposition is through movement, through the creation of space, through dragging defenders out of position. And in order to do that most effectively, you need players that can fill a number of roles or are comfortable mm-hmm. responding situationally. Kane is bright enough to know that a lot of the time, if he just plays off the shoulder, he's not going to get the opportunities. Mm-hmm. So he comes deep, he looks for the ball, he has players who then know he's going to do that and push beyond him or push up and inside of him. So, you know, it's it's kind of... <laughs> the structures have fallen. The teacher is called by her first name. Right. I mean, that's what we're looking at now. Mm. Players are given more... I don't know whether they're given more latitude. I I, I can't imagine that, that there were, you know, particularly if you go back to like 74 and total football, you know, clearly players have always been smart enough to play football of this style. Mm. And maybe it is a little bit that players are increasingly going, hey, just just trust us to to kind of respond to what's happening as we see it mm. and and give us license within a system and within a, a style that means we can do that rather than, Does you know... Does Pep Guardiola do that with his players? Isn't he famously rather strict in terms of what they are and aren't to do on the field? I like, I think, I think all managers to a degree will systematise their approaches. Um, I mean, if you look at... On one extreme, you'll have people like Sari, even Bielsa to an extent, who are saying, you know, that there are there are a number of situations which can occur when the ball is in this position, and when it's in this position, I want you to do X, Y, and Z, mm. and you rehearse those moves over and over again. But then, within that, there is always room for creativity and for freedom of expression mm. uh, as an individual player. So, you know, there's there's no way that if you look at um, you know, if you look at Messi under Guardiola, that that was not a player who was simply responding to a series of programmatic instructions. No. Um, the degree to which the players around him were doing that, but it, there it was, it was the consistent rehearsal of things that could then be responded to instinctively. So it was about teaching through the rondo, and we made a video on this. It's about teaching the technique so that the technique and the movement becomes instinctive Mm. so that how you then mesh that together around where the opposition are, that's the kind of the improvisation. Mm. 
But in order to improvise properly like a musician, you have to do a shitload of practice first. So, yeah, I, it, it's a really difficult question to answer. And it's one of those questions where really, unless unless you get into training sessions regularly and observe how coaches coach players, you're never going to know the answer to that. And we don't. And we don't. The final thing, I was supposed to mention this earlier, I wanted to ask you oh, the, yeah, okay. about the boat. About uh, the boat. Because uh, the, the, the commentator at the beginning, of, I believe you've looked this up, but the commentator at the beginning of uh, the Watford-Manchester United game on Match of the Day uh, said that there's an old Norwegian proverb, mm. uh, better to have a whole ship than a broken one. And for the life of me, I couldn't understand that because I thought you were saying it's better to have a, a ship that isn't broken than a ship that is broken. That shouldn't be a proverb if it's that's not. true. That's like saying it'd be better to have an eat a banana uh, than not have one but, but need one. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I then better to not be dead. It's better to not be dead than well, is it though? Okay, just did you um, looked up my proverb though, didn't you? Not my proverb. So I looked at I I, I found a version of it from um, a, a Norwegian journalist where the original Norwegian, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but it, it it says boat and then it says ship, so it's better to have a whole boat than a broken ship. To me, that's a question of of scale, right? So a boat is smaller than a ship. So what it's saying is it's better to have something that isn't as big but is effective yeah. than something which is big. But now I'm laughing because I'm thinking about work. how does that apply to the game? Because he's not a big name, is he? And that's why, in a weird way, that's what, it what Jonathan Pierce was saying right. okay, does make sense, but because he said it wrong, whether because it was mistranslated or because he wrote it down wrong or, or whatever... It stopped making sense, but the point is, Solskjaer's a boat. It's that better works. to have achieved a, a smaller name manager, but who is doing well, rather than, than Mourinho, who is a holy for, ship. Right, exactly. Mourinho was a broken ship, whereas Solskjaer is a working coracle. A working coracle. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's the end of today's podcast. I oh, hope you learned an something. Ending. There it was a good ending, <laughs> wasn't it? Uh, thank you ever so much for listening. Uh, I would like to say that if you would, uh, if you enjoyed our chatting here, uh, there's a, a slightly more informal side of the TIFO Football YouTube channel. You can click underneath any of our videos. There's a little join button underneath, um, and that grants you access to become a TIFO Football YouTube channel member. Uh, what are some of the perks of those, Alex? Um, the main perk is that you can request tactical videos from me which I do uh, sort of pieces to camera explaining any team. Mm. What's the one or you've got on the player? wall just there? Kashima Antlers. That's Kashima Antlers, yeah. And I'll be looking next uh, at Wellington Phoenix. Right, okay. Um, so you can be as... Who I as, thought were from MLS. Right. But they're not. No. Uh, you can be as niche or random as you like in those requests. And we, we, we've done Atalanta, we've done some MLS sides. Um, so that's, that's fun. Um, you also get a little icon next to your name when you comment you do and we're much much more likely to pay attention to what you say mm, but not wholly likely because I mean, it's possible well this is <laughs> some boring technical youtube talk but irritatingly i think this is still sort of in beta stage or maybe it's just it's, you know yeah there's some there's so. some birthing issues with the the, the youtube members uh, uh format but for some reason your icon doesn't show up when we look at comments in the back end of youtube so we have to sort of go on to each video itself to check if members have commented or had any questions so that we can ask. But you do get access to members-only community posts. Um, occasionally we do 
little Q&As where, again, you can ask any question, be it tactical or personal or not not personal, but you know, personal as in not tactical. Yeah. You can ask us questions about TIFO. Yeah. Don't um, ask personal questions. So, like, last time we looked at, at correlation between wage spend and points, but then we also looked at Lille and why they were doing really, really well. Yes. It's, it's a nice blend of questions. It's, yeah. it's an informative group of an interesting group of people that ask questions oh it's a lovely community worth listening to yeah so if you feel like uh, joining that be and, part of um, that community you can afford to please do that would be lovely um one other thing i would like to say is that we did our second tie-up with the fantastic middle eastern football website babagol um the first video we made with them was two or three months ago now and it looked at fc pyramids who were the new look egyptian team uh, with an awful lot of money the story behind them which is which was fascinating and was really well received by uh, viewers we've got one it came out uh today yesterday uh monday the first of april uh about uh tractor sazi who are an iranian team with a very interesting story as well um so thank you to uh to yuri i can't know if it's levy or levy i get confused because of um you know, the the Spurs, um, uh, what's his name, Alex? Spurs. Daniel. Yeah, I, but I always used to say Daniel Levy. Apparently it's Daniel Levy. So with Yuri, I'm not sure whether it's uh, Uri or, or Yuri. Levy or Levy. But uh, either way, it's great. Yuri Levy, I'm going to call him. It actually, I think he's going to be coming on the podcast at some point this year, which would be lovely to talk to him as well. Um, so please do go and watch that. Um, and maybe we should soft launch Bielsa Week as well. Shall we? Yeah, why not? I mean, it's the end of the podcast. If people okay. have got this far. They deserve to know the truth. Go on then, tell them. Well, the truth is that the week I should have prepared by getting the calendar up. Would you tell me what week it actually is, Alex? I believe it's the... Is it the week beginning the 29th? I thought it was the week... I don't know. Week beginning the 22nd, maybe, of April. I mean, you're definitely in charge of that yeah, stuff. Yeah, I haven't got my calendar in front of me. Um, and the <laughs> schedule on the wall is for November, so... <laughs> it's a waste of time, really. Great month, though. Yeah. Um, uh, what am I saying? Oh, Bielsa Week. The Bielsa Week. I believe it's, I should have not done this, the 22nd of April. For the whole week, we will be creating videos about uh, Marcelo Bielsa. Yeah. Uh, I believe there's one on, on his history, yep. one on uh, some of the managers who have been inspired by him, yep. uh, one on uh, some of the managers to inspire him. No. Nope. Yeah, where yeah. he where he comes from tactically. Where he comes from. He's, he's obviously hugely innovative and interesting, but that mm. doesn't come out of nothing. Finishing it off with a video on Leeds. Uh, yeah. Uh, whom we hope won't, won't be destitute by then because it will have have an impact on the week, won't it? it yes. We'd rather, for cynical reasons, that they were promoted and that Sheffield United then were promoted through the uh, playoffs so that we can not discourage anyone. I mean, I, yeah, I don't really care who goes up. As long as, as long, as long as Norwich (laughs) got first, as long as Norwich and Leeds go up, as long as Norwich go up, it's a bun fight. Yeah. Um, But that's going to be exciting. We're going to have a podcast in which I think we're going to invite a guest on as well, who knows quite a lot about uh, Marcelo Bielsa. Oh yeah. Yeah. So we'll We've do We've not that. asked him yet. We haven't asked him yet, so I'm hesitant to announce that he'll be... <laughs> Fuck it. John McKenzie's going to be on the podcast, because when I ask him, he's going to say yes. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Um, but yeah, that will be uh, in a few weeks' time. So uh, thank you very much for listening. I don't think we've got any, anything else to announce. Have we got anything else to say? No, I, I don't always think so. There's always something I forget. When um, I stop recording, I'll remember it. I mean, we've got the Champions League stuff coming up. There'll no. be some videos on that. That's fine. Um... Uh, Tifo basketball, yeah stuff. Go and, yeah, go and subscribe go to Tifo basketball. Some good videos over there. 
Uh, this is basically what our meetings are like as well. Yeah. Uh, Joe will then WhatsApp me when I'm halfway on my way home. Shit, I forgot this thing. Going, oh, I should have got you to do a thing. Mm. Okay. No, I just wind it up now, mate, because this is getting yeah. tedious. <laughs> <laughs> it's the end now. Um, bye. Bye. At American University, we don't just hope for change, we create it. We don't just dream of a better world, we make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout DC to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash gradschool.